The text this morning, I'm going to uh, take two weeks on it, it is a somewhat lengthy one, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 15. This morning, I'm not going to read the whole passage uh, because I'm going to focus just on the first uh, six verses of, uh, of, of the passage, and so we'll come to the other verses uh, next uh, Lord's Day. So I want to read uh, 2 Corinthians 11 and reading uh, verses uh, 1 through 6. Paul says to the Corinthians, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from, different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super-apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Act 3, scene 1 of Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, opens with a soliloquy by Prince Hamlet himself, the Prince of Denmark. And his soliloquy begins with these uh, famous words, to be or not to be, that is the question. And the issue that Hamlet is struggling with at that point in the play is whether to keep on living or not. Does he take his own life or does he keep on living? And as he thinks about his life, he is in deep distress. He bemoans the great unfairness and tragedies of life and the pain he's experiencing. That's on the one hand, but then he recognizes if he ends his life, things might be far, far worse. And so he begins this reflection by saying, to be or not to be, that is the question. As we come to uh, this chapter this morning and uh, on into the next chapter, the, the issue that Paul is struggling with is this matter of personal boasting. And if I can borrow that line from Shakespeare, Paul, in essence, beginning in this text and on into the next uh, chapter, says to himself, to boast or not to boast, that is the question. And he's struggling with how to answer it. Now, back in chapter 10, we looked at this last Lord's Day. Paul contrasted two kinds of boasting. And in the very last two verses of the 10th chapter, verse 17, Paul quotes from Jeremiah chapter 9, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And then he ends the chapter, verse 18, with this sentence. He says, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commands. And so the Apostle Paul makes it clear to boast in oneself is wrong. To boast in the Lord is commendable. Now, as you may recall, you've heard me say this several several times, false teachers had come to Corinth, and what does Paul say? They are bringing another gospel. They are bringing another Jesus. 
They are bringing another Holy Spirit. And that is bad enough. That's deadly for the congregation. But to top it all off, it's coupled with this arrogant spirit of boasting. Boasting how far they had traveled. How many churches they had been to. Letters of recommendation they carried with them. Hey, here are our credentials. So-and-so recommends our ministry to you. They had great speaking ability. They were smooth. They were glib. They could boast of all kinds of visions and revelations. And here's what God told me and all that kind of stuff. And in all their spiritual gifts, uh, the Corinthians were impressed by them. And they boasted in all of that to authenticate their message. So here's Paul's message. Here's ours. Look at all the stuff to our credit. So who are you going to listen to, us or him? And so they boasted in their credentials. They boasted in their background to authenticate themselves and their message and to discredit Paul and the gospel message entrusted to him by Christ. And so there were those in the Corinthian church, not all of them, but there were those in the Corinthian church who were swayed by their preaching and teaching. Paul doesn't measure up to these newcomers, many of them said. They are so polished. They are so classy. Uh, they exhibit spiritual power and victory. They can tell us about visions and dreams and all kinds of things that are astounding. They have spiritual gifts. I mean, they are just, boy, they're attractive individuals. They just kind of draw you in. Paul, on the other hand, well, he's not that great of a public speaker. Paul himself says that in our text. Uh, he's always in jail. He's always sick. I mean, he's kind of a loser, isn't he? And the message that these other newcomers bring, you know, we kind of like it better than Paul's. Some of them were concluding. And so the Corinthians were being led astray. They were turning against Paul, the founder of the church, but that wasn't Paul's real concern. They were turning against, yes, Paul, but much more significantly, the gospel message of Jesus Christ that he had brought. And so Paul faces the question, how do I combat what's going on in Corinth, these false, boastful, arrogant teachers? How do I keep the congregation from turning away from the gospel? And how do I open the eyes of the Corinthians to the stupidity of boasting, the arrogance of these individuals? How do I wake them up to all of it? And Paul thinks to himself, what if I start boasting? Hmm. What if I were to boast in myself the way the false teachers boast in themselves? Boast about my background? My heritage, my education, how many churches I visited, how many thousands of miles I've traveled, how many miracles I've performed, the many visions and revelations. I can tell story after story about that. What if I started boasting and all that? To boast or not to boast, that's the question. And if I were to boast, would that be a means to unmask these false teachers to say this whole exercise is utter foolishness and idiocy and nonsense to awaken the corinthians to the folly of 
boasting and arrogance and to bring them back to the heart of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ, his atoning death on the cross, his victorious resurrection from the dead the third day, to bring them back to the centrality of that rather than focusing on this person's gift, this person's ability, this person's personality, get rid of all of that stuff and bring them back to what the focus of the Christian faith actually is. So should I boast or should I not boast? And everything within Paul says, I can't do it. That sort of boasting is illegitimate. That's what the world does. That's what these false teachers are doing. But then again, he says to himself, maybe that's the only way to shake these Corinthians up and to bring them back to the truth of the gospel. So to boast or not to boast, that's the question. And in answering that question and uh, thinking about the church in Corinth and the false teachers, Paul undoubtedly considered what the scripture has to say. And probably, very likely, a couple of verses that Paul considered is in the book of Proverbs. Here's what we read, Proverbs 26 and verse 4. Those who would come to Corinth, arrogant, boasting, they're fools. What does Proverbs say? Answer not a fool according to his folly. Don't join in their game, lest you be like him yourself. So Paul read that verse, but then he read the very next verse with an opposite piece of advice. Proverbs 26, verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So which is it going to be? Is it going to be verse 4, or is it going to be verse 5? Which bit of advice from Proverbs is Paul going to embrace? Both ways are marked by, by danger, not answering the fool, answering the fool. What is he going to do? But Paul ultimately decides to follow verse 5. He's going to answer the fools according to their own folly. He's going to play their game and show them for who they really are. Because what he's concerned about is the Corinthians being swept away by a false gospel. And so Paul decides to answer the fools according to their folly. He doesn't expect to win them over. Doesn't expect to change their minds, but he hopes that his approach will wake up the Corinthians to how stupid this whole exercise really is. And so Paul concludes there's no other way to bring the Corinthians back to their senses but to play a little game and to engage in boasting. And because if he doesn't boast, if he says nothing, the Corinthians are going to think Paul has no answer to this. Why is he not answering? Well, because he can't. Maybe these intruders are right. Maybe these apostles who have come are correct. And Paul has nothing to say to it all. And so Paul can't let that happen. And so starting in chapter 11 and running through verse 13 of chapter 12, we have what Bible scholars call Paul's famous fool's speech. And I'm going to show you this morning the parameters of the speech. The introduction to it starts with verse 1 of our text. Notice what Paul says, I wish you would bear with me, he says, in a little foolishness. Please, bear with me in this. Okay, well, I'm going to do something here, J just, just bear with me in all of this, Paul says. Understand this is just an act, this foolishness I'm going to launch into. Bear with me. It's just an act. I can't believe I have to resort to this, but I see no other way of doing it, of making my point clear. And so Paul continues his introduction, come down to verses 16 through 18, and Paul says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish. Okay, I'm playing a part here. I'm not being like the fools these people are. 
So Paul says, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool. I mean, you've listened to them. Accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would. I get that, Paul says. But as a fool, I'm playing a part here. Since many boast according to the flesh, guess what? I too will boast. And so after he lays out all kinds of groundwork, as much as he can, uh, he officially launches into his fool's speech in the last part of verse 21. Here's how the speech begins. But whatever anyone else dares boast of, parentheses, I'm speaking as a fool here now, don't forget I'm playing a part, I also dare to boast of that, and he launches into a whole series of boasts following verse 21. But, but everything within Paul, even as he does this little exercise, even as he's playing the part, he finds this whole exercise unpleasant, distasteful. In fact, at the very end of his fool speech, here's what he writes to the Corinthians, chapter 12 and verse 11. I've been a fool, you forced me into it, Paul says. That's the way the speech ends. And so, like an actor who is on stage, uh, the actors in Paul's day, because you had these big amphitheaters, you'd wear a mask so that those in the audience, you know, 25 rows up in the amphitheater, could know what part you're playing. The mask would, would illustrate whether you're playing a villain, a hero, whatever it might be. Paul says, I'm putting on an actor's mask. I'm putting on the mask of a fool, Paul says. I'm playing the part which means I'm going to boast in myself. The only difference is the opponents who have come, they're boasting. They, they're actually genuine in it. I mean, they think this is a good thing. Paul says, they're actually arrogant. Paul says, I'm playing a part. Understand, I'm playing a part to make a point. So, Paul, in our text this morning, begins to lay the groundwork for his great boastful speech which comes up in uh, the next, uh, next number of verses. And as he starts, as part of his introduction, part of laying the groundwork, he points out how Satan operates. You notice that in our text. Because whenever there are false teachers, uh, whenever there is false teaching of any kind, you can be sure Satan is behind it. You can be sure he's active in it in, in one way or another. And what does Satan try to do? How does Paul summarize it? Look at verses 2 through 6. So verse 1, okay, I'm going to play this little part here. Put up, put up with me for a little bit here I, I'm, with the foolishness I'm going to launch into. But in verses 2 through 6, Paul says, by way of introduction, realize that Satan is always active trying to lead believers astray from a single-minded devotion to Christ. In fact, he pretty much says that, verse 3. But I am afraid that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's why he launches into this little charade here. That's why he plays the part of a fool. There's his concern right there in verse 3. And if you back up one verse to verse 2, Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. And why is that? Notice Paul gives the answer. Because I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now, we know from Scripture there are two kinds of jealousy. The first kind of jealousy is clearly wrong. It's manipulative. It seeks to control. It is possessive. It is selfish. It insists on its own way. It's a jealousy for one's sake. 
Here's what I want to get out of whatever it is. And so you're jealous because it feeds your ego, it feeds your control, whatever it is. It tramples on the rights of others. It is forcefully imposed, clearly sinful in accordance with Scripture. But, Paul says, be aware there's a second kind of jealousy. He calls it a divine jealousy in verse 2. I feel a divine jealousy for you. Uh, By the way, God in the Old Testament is referred to specifically as a jealous God. What does that mean? What What does godly, what does divine jealousy look like? It's a jealousy marked by tenderness. It's a jealousy marked by care, by compassion. It's a jealousy that more than anything else wants the well-being of the other person. It's not about me. I want this person's best. It is a jealousy which will do anything to protect the one who is deeply loved from all harm and from all evil. Paul says, I have that kind of jealousy for you as Corinthians. And you notice the analogy that Paul uses here. He says, my my divine jealousy for you, my care for you, my intensity for your well-being is like that of a father jealous for his betrothed daughter who one day will celebrate her wedding. You recall Paul came to Corinth as the pioneer missionary, the first Christian evangelist, the first apostle to come. He came to Corinth, he preached the gospel, and as a result of his preaching of the gospel, as a result of his mission endeavor, there were those who were converted to Christ. They came to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Paul organized a congregation. He ordained elders. He got the congregation established and going. And so Paul, in a very real sense, is the father of the congregation. He's the one who came. He's the one who led them to faith in Christ. He's the one who got them organized as a witness there in the city of Corinth. And so he's the father of the congregation, and those who are Christians, those who came to faith through his preaching and teaching, are his children in the faith. That's the analogy he's using here. And as believers, when you came to faith, you were betrothed to Christ, Paul says. Now, you've got to understand something about betrothal. We, a lot of times, equate it with modern wedding engagements. It's not exactly the same. In, in Bible days, betrothal was a very formal sort of a thing. It was a uh, kind of sign on the dotted line, if you will, binding contract, a betrothal was. And so when you were, what we would say, engaged, when you were betrothed, that's when you took your wedding vows then, not at the service like a year later, when you actually had the wedding service. You took your vows at the betrothal. I promise to be faithful to you, love and cherish till death. I mean, you took all the vows, whatever vows they had in those days, they took them all at the betrothal. So you made your binding vows and you made your pledges, and then when the wedding came around, it was just a celebratory time. You already took your vows months ago, last year, whenever it was. Now you have a week long of feasting and celebrating, and the betrothed couple was already, by the way, regarded as a married couple. You were regarded as married when you were betrothed. And all the wedding was is the groom taking the bride to the place he had prepared for her, the home he had prepared. And a great wedding celebration of a week. And so here's the point. When a betrothal took place, it was dad who arranged it. It was the father who arranged the marriage relationship. 
And they were legally, because they were legally husband and wife, you didn't just say, yeah, we'll get engaged, see how it works out. I mean, it was serious business, and you couldn't easily break it. If, if a person broke the betrothal agreement, he had to go through divorce proceedings, believe it or not. And uh, let's say a bride's fiancé died before the wedding, she was considered to be a widow. That's how serious betrothal was. And so Paul says, okay, so at conversion... You Corinthians were betrothed to Christ. You were bound to him. You made a commitment to him, Paul says. And who is the one who brought about the marriage arrangement? God called me to come to Corinth. I'm the father of the bride, if you will, Paul says. And so the marriage celebration is still in the future. We're living in the in-between, between the betrothal and the marriage celebration itself. And when is the marriage celebration going to be? It's when Christ returns takes his bride home to be with him. And what do we celebrate? Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're engaged now. If we're saved, we're waiting for the wedding. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And so the Corinthians, Paul says, you're living in that period between betrothal and the marriage supper of the Lamb. You're living in that period. You are bound to your groom. You're waiting for the wedding service to take place. And Paul says, are you going to remain true? to the vows you made until the wedding takes place? Or are you not? Are you going to remain pure till the wedding day? Are you going to be enticed by other loves? Will there be unfaithfulness to the groom? Paul says, I love you as a father deeply loves his betrothed daughter who is waiting for her wedding day. I have a godly jealousy that you will remain faithful and true and pure until that great day. In fact, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, by the way, you discover it was the father's responsibility in the law of Moses to guard his daughter's purity between betrothal and the marriage proper, per se. And so Paul says, you are my daughter in the faith, congregation. By the way, what does Paul say in Ephesians? We're the bride of Christ, aren't we? And so Paul says, in a unique way, because I was the missionary who came, I brought you the message of Christ, the Holy Spirit was at work, you came to faith, so I am your father in the faith. You as a congregation are my daughter in the faith. I care about you. I care about what happens to you. I care about your relationship with the Lord. That's, I take that with great seriousness, Paul says in this passage. And I fear that you will lose that initial single-minded focus on Christ. That you're no longer singing, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. You're kind of wandering away from that, Paul says. I'm concerned that your minds, your thinking, are being corrupted. You're being led into a fling with other loves, with a false gospel. And Paul says, don't think it can't happen to you. Notice in verse 3, he says, remember the first bride in human history? Remember Eve? What happened to her? Paul says. Do you remember how she was led astray? It was through smooth talking. Wake up, folks, in Corinth. These teachers have come. They're smooth. They're glib. You know, did God really say, no, you'll not surely die. There's all kinds of great things out there for you if you go this way. Paul says, wake up. That's what happened to Eve in the garden. The teachers are doing the same thing who've come to Corinth. They have cunning words. They distort the scriptures. They're just like the serpent in the garden. They're alluring, they're attractive, but what they peddle is contrary to the word of God. It twists the word of God 
in various ways, Paul says. We'll see that as we work our way in the next weeks through chapter 11 and through chapter 12. They're preaching another Jesus. Oh, they, use, they talk about Jesus of Nazareth? Oh, of course. Oh, they talk about the Holy Spirit? Yes. Oh, we're bringing you the gospel, they say, all of those things. They, they use the same language and terminology, but they mean something different by it, Paul says. And yes, their delivery is smooth, it's engaging, but understand that the content is deadly, Paul says. So don't be deceived. Verse 6, even if I am unskilled in speaking, he grants them that. I'm not the greatest preacher. I'm not the greatest public speaker that there ever was. So he says, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. I've made this pretty plain to you. And by knowledge, Paul doesn't mean like a secret you know, set of, of, um, of truths, of ideas. What he means is the gospel. We, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. Paul defines the knowledge of God as the gospel. Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, rising again the third day. That is the knowledge of God. This is life eternal, Jesus says, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so Paul says, I may not be the greatest public speaker, but when it comes to the gospel, I don't take a back seat to anybody, Paul says. I have been entrusted with the gospel from Christ himself, a gospel which directs the heart and mind not to the proclaimer, not to one's style, not to one's preferences, not to one's approach, but it directs the heart and the mind away from the one who proclaims it to the one who is proclaimed. Jesus the Christ, the Savior of the world. It's a gospel which draws people to salvation by grace through faith. Now, verse 5, Paul says, notice what he calls these intruders. He calls them, quote, super apostles. Now, these super apostles, Paul says, boast in themselves and the message that they bring, Paul says. But, here's Paul's point. No true apostle of the real Jesus, the one who said, I have come not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life away, that Jesus. The Jesus who is meek and lowly in heart. The Jesus who is gentle, kind, giving away his life for others. Paul says, no one who proclaims that Jesus ever comes and says, look at me, we're number one, we're number one. If somebody does that, they're not bringing you the right Jesus, Paul says. Wake up, he says to the Corinthians. Well, we'll come back to this, this passage, the rest of it, uh, next week. But in, in closing, I, I want you to understand the most dangerous threat to the Christian church is not by false religions out there. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, whatever it is, that's not the greatest danger to the Christian church. The greatest danger to the Christian church is from false teachers who talk about Jesus, spirit, gospel, all those things, but twist them and mean something different by it. Let me conclude by reading a paragraph from D.A. Carson. Uh, D.A. Carson is uh, today uh, Emeritus Professor of New Testament at uh, Trinity uh, Seminary in, in the Chicagoland area. And uh, he, along with Tim Keller, who, as you know, recently passed away, founded the Gospel Coalition. I found this paragraph to be immensely insightful. Listen carefully to what uh, D.A. Carson writes. He says, From the time of the fall to the present day, 
Men and women have frequently succumbed to the deceptive devices of the devil. Christians are especially open to the kind of cunning deceit, here it is, that combines the language of faith and religion with the content of self-interest and flattery. We like to be told how special we are, how wise, how blessed. And then these last couple sentences, to me, very striking. We like to have our Christianity shaped less by the cross than by triumphalism or rules or charismatic leaders or subjective experience. And if this shaping can be coded with the assurances of orthodoxy, complete with cliché, we may not detect the presence of the arch-deceiver nor see that we are being weaned away from sincere and pure devotion to Christ to a different gospel. When you combine the same words, when they're coded with orthodoxy and all the cliches that we use in church, you can think of a lot of them. When you can coat what you're teaching with that, gullible people swallow it. That's what D.A. Carson is saying. Paul recognized that was going on in Corinth. It goes on in the Christian church in our day in many different subtle ways. That is the greatest danger. And so my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would give us discernment in these days because the gospel is out there everywhere, but it's not the gospel of the New Testament. It's not the gospel Paul defines in 1 Corinthians 15. It's not by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. It ends up being something different. How we need discernment in these days. And my prayer, this was Paul's prayer for the congregation in Corinth. My prayer for each one of you is that none of you would be turned aside from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, the issues Paul faced are not unique to his day. The same kinds of issues we face, different form, they come to us in our day. And so, Lord, we need discernment. It doesn't come from our own wealth of understanding. Lord, that discernment comes from being increasingly grounded in your word. And in connection with that, watching and praying, lest we enter into temptation. And so, Lord, if we are saved here today, we have been betrothed, Father, to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. A binding contract. Promises made. Well, the promises you've made to us. And we respond to that. And we're waiting for the wedding celebration when that bride of Christ, your church, your people, those of us that belong to you, are caught up in the clouds to be with the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then, as Revelation describes, that great marriage supper of the Lamb. So, Lord, in between the betrothal and the wedding celebration, A lot of days go by, a lot of years go by, a lifetime goes by. And Lord, we can't stay true on our own. We don't have it in us. And and so, Lord, you hold us in your mighty and powerful and gracious hand. Keep us true, Lord. Rekindle in our hearts that sense of your love for us. And then kindle a response of love back to you on our part. And so, Lord, when it comes to, as Paul has been talking about this matter of boasting, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Yes, he's playing a little game here. 
but that is still his bedrock conviction. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord and nothing else. May that be true, Lord, for each one of us. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.